You are listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone and Interzone Digital. You can find out more about Interzone at interzone.press and more about Interzone Digital at interzone.digital. Talking to me today is Elizabeth Bear, uh, author of numerous science fiction and fantasy novels, short stories, and lots of other things as well. Um, thank you very much for coming and talking to me, uh, Elizabeth Bear. I am delighted to be here. Uh, I wanted to, you've, you've just been in the, the Interzone Story Social talking, saying some really fascinating things about short stories. Um, and I wanted to kind of start off just by, by, by kind of asking you to tell people a little bit about, you know, maybe how you got into writing and also how you got into writing short stories versus writing novels and the story behind that, because they're obviously very different creatures. And, and you do kind of occupy both those spaces, like, you know, incredibly strongly. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, when I was very small, at some point, I realized that, you know, that, that moment that children have where they realize that food comes from someplace before it is in the supermarket, mm -hmm. like it comes from a farm. Um, I kind of, I kind of had that experience with books. Like books, I realized that somebody made books. And as soon as I realized that, and I must have been six or seven years old, I knew that what I wanted to do was make books. Um, I also wanted to be an astrophysicist and a jockey, but one out of three ain't bad. <laughs> um, and I do have a horse, so I guess I kind of, it's kind of one point. I, I was going to say, you, you, you do. You do have a horse and you write about yes. space. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's nearly, it's nearly the same. I, I just don't have to do the math and uh, I don't, don't have to jump, uh, you know, do steeplechasing at, at 35 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Astrophysics without the hard parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I let other people do the hard part and then I borrow their work. Um, the, uh, so Initially, um, when I was very little, I sort of indiscriminately wrote, I guess you could generously call them short stories and poetry. Um, and I was spent a lot of my adolescent, early adolescent years writing a sort of fat plot coupon fantasy um, of the sort where the endlessly increasing band of adventurers wanders from place to place around the planet, uh, collecting bits of things that they will eventually need to solve the problem at the end. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> did, you, did you call it a plot coupon fantasy? A plot coupon fantasy, yes. You have to go, <laughs> go from point A to point B and collect all the plot coupons. And then when you get them when when and then at the end you can redeem them for a climax <laughs> <laughs> okay here's your stuffed bear sorry dragon right okay yes exactly exactly here's it's it's like a scavenger hunt you have to go and you have to find you know the magic sword and i i don't know the magic ring and the wizard and the princess who's got the other thing and you know and then get them all into the somehow get them all into the same place at the same time and it's like it's like a logic problem it's like the thing with the fox and the goose and the cabbage you know 
and so in basically it it was just years and years of work uh and i actually didn't finish a what i would call a real novel until i was 30 um i kept getting the first third written and then getting stuck because i didn't know how to do transitions and i think this is a problem that a lot of a lot of apprentice writers have like the first third is the easy part because that's the setup it's when you have to write the middle that everything becomes terrible right you have to kind of get past that is it i know the hump or yes yeah the the 30k wall as i like to call it okay <laughs> 30,000 word wall and then the first the first finished like, like the, the first published novel would have been which one hammered which was hammered i was going to say yeah yes. hammered is the first right yep and that was the the fourth novel i finished and probably like the 23rd that i started uh, were my eyes deceiving me, or has Hammered recently had a new audio, or, or the first audio reading? Because I, I was looking around for titles, and I, it looked like Hammered had a new cover. Yeah, the so the the Jenny books, um, I I really like those covers. They're they're very, uh, I don't know, sort of diesel punk. Um, the uh, everything sort of big and machiney and. Uh, but yes, no, the, the, the audible, uh, versions just came out either earlier this year or late last year. I don't remember which, um, and I'm super excited to have them. They're, they're from, uh, Trantor Media, uh, and they were, the books were published almost 20 years ago now. Uh, it'll mm. be 20, 20 years in 2025 um wow. which is hard to believe i've been doing this for two decades now uh that's a lot of words yeah it's a lot of words uh but i'm i'm delighted to have them as audiobooks i haven't actually listened to them yet uh because i get incredibly self-conscious about listening to my own work in audiobook <laughs> oh, okay. you can't you can't go through the whole thing i it it depends like sometimes Sometimes I can, and sometimes if I'm about to start uh, another work in a series, I will listen to the audiobook of the previous work because it gives me a little more distance. Uh huh. But um, but it, it it's also it's it's incredibly embarrassing. Just right. I, I don't back. know why. Yeah, exactly. Just, I, I had the like, same thing with with when after spending kind of you know hours upon hours on on Interzone two nine four, I I had the same thing where once it was actually physically in in the building, so to speak, I couldn't open it. Yeah, it was it was quite it was quite hard to actually initially sort of want to go through it, and so and yes, I I I am probably the person who's who's read it the least. Yeah, <laughs> or, or well, probably not, not the least, but but one of the least. <laughs> also, by the by the time I get to, by the time a book gets to publication, I've been over it so many times that I can't remember what happens in it because there's so many different versions in my head. So again, when in writing a series, I have to go back and check and see what actually wound up in the book as opposed to on the cutting room floor or, uh, you know, got changed or, uh, but also it's just by the time it's in print, I've probably read it 20 times and I'm just 
sick of it. No, no more. <laughs> page proofs. Oh, page proofs are, are the worst torture ever because you can't really change anything at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're just reading for corrections and, and yet everything is terrible because you've read it 20 times and it all seems like it's like, it's like watching cartoons with your kids, you know, uh-huh. how many, how many Teletubbies, how many Teletubbies reruns can you sit through? Or <laughs> How many Totoro's? Yeah. How many, how many Totoro's? Or how many? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On, the, yeah the, the one answer is like, there is never too many. The other answer is, yeah, there is, there, there are, there are points. I would much rather sit through a Totoro than a Teletubbies marathon. The Teletubbies. Yeah. <laughs> also also things look different when they're set right so when you get those page proofs back versus you know whatever font you used in your in your, your manuscript versus sort of seeing it on the page at least for me i i kind of notice things differently i yeah happens the same with the website so you're gonna you have you, you have to do it because you have to you, you do see things it's like a great a great proofreading tip that to, to like change the font read backwards all those kind of things you yeah. hear right Print it out, change the font. Yeah, change the font, but it still, yeah, it still starts to get too, too much. It's like no. Um, where, where in that kind of novel writing process did the short story writing process uh, begin, or so? When, when in that process did it begin? So they, they were always sort of interlinked. Um, I was finishing short stories earlier than I was finishing novels. Like I managed to, I was still very much like feeling my way through them. I didn't have a good sense of, of structure yet. Um, one of the hardest things for me to learn to do was tell a story in a linear fashion. And I mean that even like on a sentence level, because I have a very strong tendency to try to do 17,000 things at once. So part of my drafting process is taking my incredibly long, convoluted, and somewhat repetitive sentences and breaking them up into something with a through line and an arc, as opposed to like a series of overlapping spirals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I do really tend to sort of when when drafting, when I'm figuring stuff out, um, I tend to go back over the same territory more than once. And so I have to go through and, and remove a lot of that or tidy it up. Um, the, uh, weirdly enough, despite that tendency, I am, generally speaking, a terrible underwriter. And, you know, Stephen King's thing about a second draft is a first draft minus 15%. My second draft is my first draft plus 15% because I have to go in and explain everything. Oh, okay. Because um, I, I never, like, and, and by explain everything, I mean, like, character motivations, like that, and transitions. That's the thing that never makes it into the first draft for me. Um, and, and that's true for short stories and for novels. Yes. That kind of, uh, that underwriting and then adding, uh-huh. Yeah. And also the, and also the tendency to, repeat myself but i mean in in the story social we were talking about dolly and it's interesting you talk about you know underwriting or overwriting because we one of the things i said was that it did feel like you know it was exactly the right length for for what it was doing and and there are these lovely details looking at it i'd read it before 
more for the story and reading it reading it now for sort of the for you know reading it again for the story but also reading it for the details and there are sort of you know the the the, the lovely little bit where she's she's picking at the hangnail and it's and you add that detail that the the the, the crime scene gloves dry out her skin and it's one of those little kind of teeny tiny excellent sort of little observations that that just sort of puts it yeah puts you right back into that you know th this is a crime story right but it's mm -hmm. also a story about you know this woman who's nervous about or not nervous but who's sort of you know is you know going through her day with all of these sort of you know very normal very sort of human anxieties it's uh yeah so it's yeah I, I wonder kind of does that kind of thing is that that kind of second draft third draft thing it it's sometimes it sometimes it's first draft. Uh, sometimes those little character bits just show up, and they're part of the flow um, and the part of the the fictional dream. Uh, uh -huh. And sometimes you think of them later and are like, "Oh yeah, this would be exactly the right thing to put in here." Um, the The other thing is that you ha have to sort of take out the things that aren't the right thing for that character. Um, mm. For example, like that particular character, if I had had her picking at her cuticle um, and, and mentioned, you know, that the uh, her, her manicure had, had left <laughs> her, you know, cuticle, like that's not a character who's going to have a perfect manicure. Um, so I would have to fix that if I had just sort of thrown that in there for a bit of business. Um, but, and sometimes you notice immediately that you wrote the wrong thing and sometimes you have to go in and fix it on the second or third draft. And you used that great phrase earlier in the social, you said how you're kind of like with characters, it's almost like method, a sort of method approach where you're, you, you, you know, the character is right or is doing the things that feel right. And I suppose you know, if you're writing a story over kind of weeks or months, your view of who the character is changes. So you have to kind of go back and fix things too, right? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes I I often joke that some of the most interesting characters are the ones that take forever to let me in because the they they can be interesting because they are hiding a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And part of my job as the writer, I, you know, I, I am, I don't want to get all woo on you. And, and I'm fully aware that these are all like little fragmented particles of my psyche that I have invented and am using my peculiar human neurology that allows us to model the behavior of, you know, like theory of, allows us to develop theory of mind and model the behavior of other creatures mm -hmm. um, that, so it's 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 when when I say that when I, when I refer to a character that I'm writing as them, that othering process is is part of making them distinct and making not every character be just me in a funny hat. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> every so often, I do write a character who is just me in a funny hat, um, which is very enjoyable and very easy because you know I just have them do whatever I would do in that situation. Okay. But I would be a terrible protagonist because I'm far too cautious. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, eh, that's a giant monster. And nope, nope, nope. 
<laughs> Mary Sue wouldn't work here. Yeah. I will be in the basement. Yes. Yes, I will I will be in the tornado shelter. <laughs> oh look, Godzilla, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> that that's the end of the that's a really short that's, that's a flash. That's a very short story. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's great. You mentioned like othering with characters, and, and and something else that something else I was thinking about looking at this one, and I I went from Dolly, uh, I re- I reread Dolly, and then I reread, oh, no, I read for the first time, uh, uh, a blessing. Is it a blessing of unicorns? I've I've written oh, the title. Oh yeah, yes, a blessing, yes, of, a unicorns, blessing of unicorns. Which wasn't deliberate. I wasn't looking for like two sort of two sort of cop stories, and I just had that. That was the issue I had. And I realized, oh, I haven't seen that. I, I don't think I've looked at that one. So I went there. And, and that was an audio first. That was Audible Originals first. So I, I took a look yes. at that in Asimov's. And I was I was thinking right from the beginning how it's not just that the characters are different. It's also that the, yeah, sort of stylistically, the the prose is different. The the, the prose in those fields, or, or the, the one I've read, so I haven't read In the House of Ariaman yet. But, but the prose seemed a lot more... Yeah, just like a different vibe to it. Hard to kind of put my finger on. A bit more jocular, kind of a bit more sort of. There was a kind of a, a different kind of. There was a lightness to it, and and the world as well was sort of obviously a very different setting. And I I wonder is that is that something that you're very conscious of as well? Not just othering the characters, but also othering your style. So you know, you know, I'm writing in this style. I'm writing in that style for different stories. Yeah, I, I do try to find a voice for any given story and any given character. And um, I feel like, it, and it's interesting because both, you're, you're right that both of those stories do feature sort of middle-aged single female detectives. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very different people. Uh, one is very connect, one is very lo- lonely um, and very isolated and alienated and has basically nothing but her work um, and is in much more of sort of a noir setting. And the other one, the, the protagonist of um, the Bangalore stories uh, is very connected to her family like her her family drives her crazy constantly and it's sort of a running gag throughout those stories um she loves them very much and they also drive her out of her gourd and 50 percent of the conflict in the stories comes not from solving the mystery but from navigating her relationship with you know her mother and her aunts Mm -hmm. um and I, I love that, you know, it, um, I love the ability to take a person who is in some way, take a, take a category of marginalization, shall we say. So Mm -hmm. in this case, like female law enforcement officer, um, and show a bunch of different people do not conform to stereotype um, because I feel that one of the ways that we force the world to see us as people is to present in a variety of different fashions, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. 
and because the 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 sort of characteristic narr- western narrative for so many years is you know four guys who are all different and a chick and the chick's personality is that she's the chick <laughs> Fe- female as a character trait you mean exactly yeah. exactly um and I'm saying chick ironically there. I feel like I should point that out. <laughs> but, you know, it's 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 the Smurfette thing, right? Right. 20, 27 Smurfs and Smurfette. And Smurfette's personality is that she has eyelashes and blonde hair and a dress. Um, whereas when you have a selection of different women, even if they're in different stories, they all get to be people. Yeah. They don't, they don't all have to carry all the weight of being the female character. And I feel like that's, that's super important, honestly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that is, I mean, that's the, that's a, that's a huge thread running through lots of the the books of yours that I've enjoyed is the, yeah, these, these very, very sort of individual females characters, you know, and kind of, you you mentioned how, you know, if Godzilla walked in, you'd turn the other way, which is... (laughs) But, but, but the, the, these are, these are female characters who are, who are kind of like faced with challenges in their world. I mean, it sounds really obvious, right? Cause it's, you know, it's a story, but they're, they're faced with challenges right. and dealing with them in really human ways and, and, you know, coming to life, you know, in, in, in very different ways. So that, yeah, no, I think I can, it's really interesting to hear you say that about the, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's really fun to to write characters who are very different because you know if if uh, you know in that in that hypothetical Godzilla scenario I think pretty much everybody I've every female character I've written would deal with it differently. I think all the male characters would deal with it differently too, but like <laughs> Karen Memory would run right out and get in a mech suit and go fight it. Uh, <laughs> Ste- um, steampunk mech suit or something <laughs> yes yep exactly she'd find one yeah. i have faith in her um whereas i've certainly written other characters who would be like okay we need to come up with some sort of bitter lemon for giant reptiles that will steer it in the wrong direction <laughs> <laughs> you're out there with your little squirt bottle of dog repellent and <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's really really interesting it, it, and, and also uh with with the i i need to kind of i i plan to actually kind of yeah take a look at take a look at the those two uh, is it's Farron and uh indra promit yeah yes yeah the, those i i want i want to kind of look at those those sort of to get like back to back because i because i i'm really intrigued to see this because i know you're 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 really a fan of kind of like detective novels right we the 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 time i interviewed you before i think you were talking about about uh about kind of like rereading sort of you know classic detective novels sometimes to see you know what they're doing right and, and what they're doing wrong and i suppose it's sort of it's logical that you'd have a series right you'd have this sort of these recurring characters who are kind of, you know, investigating. But in those stories, the the real the, the attraction isn't the crime. Yeah. You know, like if I'm if I'm looking at Bosch or reading Bosch, I, I the crime is it's certainly intriguing, but I'm super interested in Bosch, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I I want to know about the detective and his family and the way he sort of, you know, the he holds his cigarettes or whatever it is. It's that kind of close study that 
that really draws me into those. Is is that also what kind of draws you into like writing and reading that kind of story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it also the the detective's character has to inform the way the investigation happens. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, uh, and I'm going to pick a low hanging fruit here, uh, the Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. The difference between the Hercule Poirot novels and the Miss Marple novels and the the way that they approach investigation Mm -hmm. is delightful to me um, because it is a character study. It's a set of character studies. You know, you've got Poirot's obsessive compulsiveness. You've got his meticulousness. You've got his arrogance, whereas Miss Marple is operating on a deep baked in knowledge of how human beings operate. And uh, like uh, a much more sort of intuitive structure. And I think what's really cool about Christy is that she was able to create two absolutely um, iconic characters who are so different and who approach their narratives in such a different way. That's, that's a very unusual thing. Like most, yeah, most authors get one if they get one. Yeah. She, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it quite that way that she, yeah, she did sort of create these two completely different, um, and and gave herself two completely different you know ways of essentially you know solving crimes right so you know yeah. talk about being prolific but also there's there's a point where if you have the same detective solving crimes you know how many times can you have Poirot do certain things but you also give yourself more more narrative choices as well so she's yeah that's that's I hadn't thought of it quite that way very yeah smart writer notoriously smart writer. <laughs> <laughs> The um did you did you see the did you see the the tweet or the social media thing about the hundred people uh, locked inside the Agatha Christie museum I think it was and the power I went s- out. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it. I was I was actually at at ReaderCon when it happened, so I didn't <laughs> didn't follow up. But I was I I did in fact see that yes the the the, the delicious irony of that particular little news item. It was very. It's very satisfying when the universe gives you those little gifts, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of like if I like if if you were trying to convince me that there were ghosts, you know, that would be on the that would be one of the things <laughs> you should <laughs> definitely definitely satisfying. Um, and and will and so uh, are there more of those those um, those uh, Ferran Indra Pramit, Indra Pramit uh, sort of stories on you know planned or are you thinking of more i am i i may have come up with an i may have come up with an appropriately gruesome way to dispose of a body which is always the um that's the that's the most important factor in those stories is the okay. <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't say that's the most important that's that's sort of the hook it's the shtick um the your Google search history must be must be really dodgy. You know, if I if I can't if I can't start with a with a horrific crime scene, what's the point? Oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm actually just reading uh, uh, Tade Thompson's um, uh, Far From the Light of Heaven. Speaking of horrific crime scenes, uh, <laughs> the uh, space station or spaceship garbage disposal oh. stuffed full of disassembled corpses. Um, I don't think I'm not going to be quite that gross. But <laughs> which book is that? What's the title again? It's 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 called Far from the Light of Heaven by by Tade Thompson. That's that's that, that sounds cool. The there there was um uh, S A S A Cosby, I, I think uh, it has, has written these great kind of crime novels, and um and I think he I think his tweet was something like about asking someone about you know how much DNA would be left if I was disposing of a body in a wood chipper, <laughs> <laughs> or or he was replying to someone about this <laughs> like conversations writers have about about yeah about crimes it's a yeah lots apparently uh, apparently getting the dna off a wood chipper is really difficult yeah yeah <laughs> you've you've checked <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna get everywhere right it's gonna be absolutely everywhere yeah. everywhere yeah so the 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 backstory there is that the infamous wood chipper murder actually took place only uh a couple dozen miles from my childhood home. So, um, <laughs> oh, no. that was, that was local news when I was a kid. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh, that's a, uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, mo mo moving from crime to, uh, moving from crime to, to, to AI, you, you obviously do Dolly entirely does this kind of whole question about, about kind of, you know, robots and consciousness. Although reading it this time, I, I actually had a different take on it, but I'll, I'll, I'll go back to that in a second. But you, you've also written these sort of big space operas um, about, uh, you know, that, that, that involve AI. And there's a third one on the way next year, right? Um, yes, I, I have handed, I've handed in the first draft. So it's, it's um, the third white space novel. It's called The Folded Sky. And curiously enough, it's also a, a mystery in space. Um, the, I don't, I, I don't know. It's such early days. I don't really have an elevator pitch for it yet. Um, oh, the so protagonist. Yeah. The, the, I've, I've just handed in the first draft uh, and my, my editor has it and is occasionally sending me nice notes, but hasn't sent me a revision package yet. Um, but interzone kind of list of interzone podcast listeners, yeah, maybe kind of the, the other two. Sure. Uh, Cause it's machine, machine and ancestral, night ancestral night yes yeah no the 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 first one is called ancestral night and it's about a uh salvage operator with a mysterious past who stumbles across a uh horrific crime scene and is sort of sucked into a galaxy-wide plot um uh, that involves ancient alien civilizations and uh, dark secrets and uh, things that she has chosen to forget about her own childhood um, and, and young adulthood. Uh, the second one is Machine, which is about a, a trauma and rescue surgeon who is part of the group that discovers an ancient and apparently derelict generation ship mm -hmm. um, and goes into it to attempt to help the people who may or may not still be inside. 
and then there are some shenanigans. Um, and she was she was a lot of fun to write because she's not she's she's like many like like many talented surgeons uh, a little brittle and difficult. Um, and trying to make her approachable as a protagonist was extremely challenging. Um, but competence helps, and at least she's competent. The uh, the third one involves a a, a um, an arc informist, which is my coinage for people who do complicated historical data retrieval on ancient systems. Oh, uh, okay. Who is uh, one of a couple of people in on a research team um, attempting to rescue a Matryoshka brain uh, from a star that is on the verge of going an ancient, an, an ancient and, and uh, enigmatic Matryoshka brain from the orbit of a star that is on the verge of going supernova. Wow. Um, and of course, uh, her her long term rival and enemy is also on the research team, and then her wife and kids show up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's having a bad day at work. Bad day at work. <laughs> oh, that's that's that sounds great. No, that sounds. Thank you for yeah. Thank you for that one. Uh, so so that's yeah. That, that the first draft in next year, but the other two are. I think the other two are both out in paperback, right? Uh, the other two are both out in paperback. Yes. Okay, so you know, definitely check those two out. Um, the I was also I was looking around because because thinking about short stories, and I think they, they just you know how how kind of important they are or how much i enjoy them I, I i just like reading short stories but also how much for you know writers who are starting out in particular that, that you know they really you know the short story magazines do give a kind of a, a place where people can get published which is really important mm-hmm. um and you're you are you're still writing novels and short stories and i think i saw is it twin strangers in a, in an anthology that that's your most recent published short story i believe it is yes it just came out um in the tasting light uh from mit press which is a uh young adult futurism oh it's mit collection of original stories yeah yes and that's that's about a, a kid who gets in trouble with some algorithms Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kid who gets in trouble with some algorithms. That's almost like the perfect segue. Um, okay. So, so tasting light, ten, ten, ten science fiction stories to re- rewire your perceptions. And that's, uh, yeah. So your twin strangers is in that. That looks great. I'm going to have to, and you, you, you've done some other things for MIT press, right? You've done the, you wrote, was it one introduction or more than one for those, uh, Stanislav Lem volumes they were putting out i wrote i wrote one introduction for i I wrote an introduction for one of the stanislav lem collections Mm -hmm. um and i was actually it was i was very happy with it um because they did let me be somewhat critical yeah both in the uh, you know pointing out 
some of the things that haven't aged well, but also in just doing some literary analysis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which, was, which I love to do and I don't often get an opportunity to do. Um, and I've also written a couple of short, uh, well, novellas um, for the the 12 Tomorrows uh, series, uh, the most recent of which was uh, a story called OK Glory, which is about a tech bro who gets locked in his own smart house by terrorists or extortionists, not terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> That's another bad day at work. Another bad day at work. <laughs> Well, the, yeah, there are there are threads running through the stories. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the I, I guess he's like a proto tech bro, a proto tech bro. Right? Okay. He in in Dolly, it's uh, I guess in a sense, there's there's maybe the he, it wouldn't you could imagine that character being a. I think being a tech bro. I think even even in it. Oh, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was going to say yeah. I, I think that's a fair. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I think there's a line about how they're how the, how these are perfect for narcissists, right? And, and so of course the yes. the kind of the stereotype tech bro narcissism is great. Yeah, this is a a great great target for all these all, all, all these uh, stories. There's there's also a lot of I I find the uh, the the move fast and break things ethos very problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, on on so many levels because when you say break things, what you really mean is break people. Right. And if you're not if you're not considering the ethical implications of what you're doing, then you're just contributing to this sort of new gilded age that we all find ourselves trapped in and looking for a way out of. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, there's, there's, there's your, there's your dose of socialism for the podcast. <laughs> oh, let's, let's, <laughs> what, what this, the, the socialism would, uh, slight digression to, to, to social, to, to socialism. Um, uh, apparently Star Trek actually used the word socialism for the very first time. Uh, uh, Chris Farnell uh, asked on Twitter about it or was double checking and saying like was that was that mentioned the first actual mention of the word and and it seems like yeah Strange New Worlds has has achieved a first that they actually directly oh, yeah. mentioned socialism they, <laughs> they actually said something about social a socialist utopia that's true they did yeah I've, I've actually been enjoying Strange New Worlds a lot a lot more than than most of the other recent Star Trek um, it feels like a return to form mm-hmm. to me and sometimes it's in- it's good fun. Yeah, and I don't, I don't go to Star Trek to be depressed. No, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm. That's what the expanse is for. <laughs> <laughs> I I was really I, I saw Enterprise for the first time recently, and I was really surprised. Well, not well, not surprised, but I, I'd heard sort of you know really mixed things about it, and I'd never actually sat down and properly watched it, and I was really surprised just by how much how much joy there was not just in the in in the in the interactions but also just in the setting and how you know putting these people you know in these spaceships with low ceilings and you know squeaky floors and and all of that kind of you know doors that don't open automatically there was a real sort of pleasure in seeing that seeing them go through that process you know installing phases on the fly and so yeah i i i, I think that's one of the great joys about star trek is that it's it's just, yeah, you don't want to see loads and loads of dark, grim things. 
Yeah, I'm not. I, I I watched the first season of Picard, and I'm like, I don't want body horror in my Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> um, so so having having strange new worlds to come back to is uh, really I I've been enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, even when it's extremely silly and it is sometimes extremely silly, but it's got, it's got heart. Yeah. And I feel like there was this long chunk of like the late nineties through the early 20 teens, early to mid 20 teens when everything just had to be grim as heck. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if it's a reaction against the real world seeming grim as heck for the past, you know, eight years or so, Mm. but, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an improvement. Yeah, definitely. I I wonder how much with some of these space shows where they get darker, whether there's actually like a, there's like a technical element, right? Because because you know when you're filming a show like that, you need a lot of light, to, you know, to light the sets, to light things. You know, cameras need light, and I wonder if as yeah. the as the tech has kind of improved, people just sort of grad. There was a creep towards like you know, let's like lower the lighting, lower the lighting, because it looks more kind of inverted commas moody, <laughs> and then the stories sort of come in. Yeah, it gets moodier too. Because I I noticed that I think it was there were moments in Picard where I was like, after watching the Next Generation, you kind of go. Yeah, it's just like like everything's lit differently. <laughs> yeah, what happened? What happened to all the bright colors? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other another thing is that I think culturally we are sort of programmed to treat dark or grim material as more serious and more worthy Mm. than pleasurable material. You know, uh, not even pleasurable because some dark stuff can be extremely pleasurable, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm not going to say that Macbeth isn't a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But also there's, there can be a great deal of, serious artistic merit in something that is not, um, not grim. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my friend, uh, Catherine Addison, um, AKA Sarah Monette, uh, she writes under two names mm-hmm. has, uh, established a distinction a long time ago, probably 20 years ago at this point where she was talking about, noir as a setting versus Claire as a, as a setting. Um, Mm -hmm. And this actually takes us back to the, the Dolly uh, Dolly versus the, the Farron stories Mm -hmm. Um, because Dolly is noir and the Farron stories are Claire, like terrible things happen. And uh, you know, but, but there is a, there's a sense of, uh, good heartedness and that the future may not be devastatingly dark that I worked very hard to bake into those. Um, and I feel like that is a much more useful distinction than whatever it is, whatever it is that, that, uh, what, whatever marketing term it is that people are throwing around this week. 
that's that's a really yeah that's a and and i think that's a great sort of you know the marketing terms normally center around genres and the genres tend to be centered around themes or, or tropes whereas you know yeah tonally that's yeah that's uh yeah that's a great distinction because it's because it, it cuts across genres right that distinction right because people talk about you know um she as sarah monette she wrote the um melusine and the doctrine of the, that whole doctrine of labyrinths books which are incredibly noir mm -hmm. they're extremely dark and as Catherine addison she's you know writing the goblin emperor and and stories in that world which horrible things happen like the 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 people talk about the goblin emperor as this fluffy happy book um but it i mean it opens with the main character being savagely savagely beaten and orphaned hmm. uh, <laughs> like that's a, but the thing is that he he spends the entire book trying to be decent mm. and i think that that is that is the distinction there that you you have that what, what was raymond chandler's thing about the knight in tarnished armor oh you know as the, as the noir protagonist um and your your claire protagonist is might be a knight in tarnished armor, but they're trying consciously to get better. Mm -hmm. And I think that the success of some uh, like television shows like uh, um, The Good Place and Ted Lasso mm -hmm. spring to mind immediately. As these are not shows that are shallow no. and that are afraid to talk about big topics. Or I've I've just started watching um, The Bear, oh, which okay. is a I don't know if you've seen that or not. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard really good things it's, about it. I had been avoiding it because I thought it was going to be extremely dark. Uh huh. Um, and often I find the shows that really double down on darkness to not have enough other stuff going on. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's incredibly big hearted. Okay. Uh, and not in a, but not in a twee or cloying sort of way. And I just find, I mean, human decency is so hard. It is so hard. It is so much easier to be an asshole. And watching, cons consuming media about people trying to be decent and having that be part of the conflict is very satisfying to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's harder to, I, I don't know if it's hard, I, I wouldn't know if it's harder to write or not, but I, I feel like it's, there, there's a, there's more, there's, there's a subtlety required for that. And it has to be, re, you know, it has to be, you can make your, it's like, like your Bond villains, you don't need a huge amount of character building to make your Bond villains villainous, but you do need to, Bond needs the work, right? If you're, yeah. if you're going to go, go along with him. Yeah. And not that Bond is trying to make himself better though. <laughs> no, no, Bond is Bond is Bond and and, yeah. <laughs> and is doing Bond things and uh <laughs> um So I, I think the Picard is interesting because I think they kind of got I think in terms of going from the Picard of the kind of lighter, you know, more you know, TNG was wasn't always light, but there was a it was about, you know, that that optimism. And then taking that character and then, you know, doing what they wanted to do, I think, in, or what they were trying to do in season one was a real, yeah, that's going to always be hard, I think. Uh, it, it was, it didn't, 
it did it, it wasn't I, I wasn't sold on it i wasn't sold on most of picard until probably and then this goes back to something you said in the story social about how we become attached to objects and there was one moment in season three where uh the the the, the voyager theme came on and then another moment where the enterprise d came out and those two moments were real like oh the voyage they've shown voyager and like enterprise d and it's and it's really silly right but it, but at the same time that's yeah that's uh that's kind of what star trek really for me is about so when that came back a bit more strongly in season three i was yeah i was watching it a lot more closely yeah i i think about um uh, while we're on Star Trek, uh, the Wrath of Khan, and like, what is, and 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 the search for Spock, you know that that uh, pair of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what's worse, Spock dying or the Enterprise being destroyed? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's it's hard to pick, and the Enterprise is just a chunk of metal <laughs> right but you get really attached yeah, yeah, yeah um you get really attached to objects and it's i mean it's probably adaptive on some level in, in a in a scarcity society if you lose your axe you're in big trouble mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you hold on to it yeah exactly um Linking back to the short story, talking about, talking about becoming attached to objects. There's in in Dolly. There's a great observe, There's a great kind of description of how the um, when when she goes home and her her kind of robot is cooking. How the he he's not wearing a shirt and his back looks like it's you know it's starting to fade. I kind of you know in the way you know baker light might or plastic might. Yeah. And the, and it's been fixed. And 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 uh, when you were talking earlier about kind of how we treat objects and just just then when you mentioned that. I was thinking that that's a great little bit of character work there because she hasn't replaced it as it's got older, either because she couldn't or because she didn't want to, but she has, you know, either had it fixed or, or, or taken care of it. And yeah, we do hold on to these, like, you know, whether it's a battered ax or a, a battered iPod or whatever it is, it's a, yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, I mean, I live in a, by American standards, very old house. Um, and it has, it's quirky and creaky and has a lot of weird little things that are annoying about it. Um, but I also, I love it for its history and I find its history very comforting. Um, every, you know, there, there was a, there was a period, uh, during early, early on in, uh, in the Trump administration, which was an emotionally rough time for me for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, when I reminded myself that this house has been here, not, you know, not just for close to 300 years, but through multiple domestic wars, through foreign wars, through other plagues, through, you know, and, having that that sense of continuity and solidity was actually incredibly comforting to me hmm. um when i felt like nothing was reliable that's interesting and i mean it's just a house it's an object but it's an object that has that i have an emotional investment in 
that you've kind of yeah you've you, you, even though it's not human it has it's seen it's it's yeah we we it's seen things and it's survived and we kind of we take something from that yeah exactly sort of like the sphinx with its nose knocked off you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 that's right okay well that, i think that seems that's a great place to to end i think that's a nice optimistic place um we want a little bit of optimism, a bit of socialist utopianism, maybe, or, you know. A little, of, just a, as a treat. Yeah, just as a treat, because there's <laughs> en enough things going on. What, my, my, my wife said something yesterday about, like, sort of what, we were talking about all the things in the news, and it's like, it seems to be, yeah, floods, fires, you know, are there frogs falling from the sky yet? No, not sure. Um, yeah, it does seem to be at the moment. We're living through a particularly uh, a grim time for lots of yeah. reasons. The, the bad the bad floods uh, in my region of the U.S. Um, you know, I I know people who have lost their houses and or been trapped up hills, and yeah. it's been quite a thing. We're we're fine. Well, I haven't gone down to look in the ba I I haven't gone down to look in the basement. Oh no! But, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna check in a couple of days. I think. <laughs> After, after thinking about something optimistic, I've managed to digress. But th there was um, there was a, a really cool Netflix show a little while about a, a while back about a big flood that happened here in Poland in Wrocław, and uh, one of the early scenes, the the scientist goes into a basement, and she sort of touches the walls, and the walls are kind of weeping. Uh, there's sort of you know the, there's there's a load more water in the kind of water table than there should be. So even though everything yeah. looks fine. It's sort of, yeah, there's like this sort of early warning sign that there's too much water. Yeah. You, do, do you get like early warning signs? Do you kind of, do you kind of know that, okay, if this is happening, start preparing? Yeah. Our, our, our house has, um, the, the basement, the foundation of our house is not watertight. It's just, uh, what we call here field stone. So it's, um, it's stacked raw stone, but it's not mortared in any way. So water does come in and flow out again, which is, a you know, we have a very variable water table here. And that's one of the techniques for dealing with it. And all of the physical plant of the house is up on risers so that the, you know, the, the heater and so forth are safe. Um, but it does mean that our basement isn't useful as anything other than basically a hole in the ground. You can't store stuff down there. Uh, okay. uh, but it also means that I have the privilege of not having to worry too much about it. If there's water in the basement, like the sump pump will take care of it eventually. <laughs> okay. It's, um, <laughs> it's, just, it's supposed to do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's supposed to do that. Yeah. Um, and the, the only problem is if it starts to like, come up the stairs but that hasn't happened so <laughs> okay. oh, <goodness laughs> and me. hopefully won't okay well that's that, that that that's great I, I, fingers fingers crossed yeah um <laughs> fingers crossed for not floating away mid-podcast Th thank you so much for coming on the podcast for for, and for coming on the the story social as well it's been a real pleasure to talk to you i always i always enjoy it um yeah, thank you very, very much. It's been delightful. Thank you. This is Interzone Pod. I am Gareth Jelly, and today my guest was Elizabeth Bear. Subscribe to Interzone 
at interzone.press and read stories for free at interzone.digital. Thanks for listening. See you next time.